We return to our, our historical account of the United States emerging as a Western Hemisphere power in the Monroe Doctrine. Enjoy. Less than 50 years after the United States fought and won its independence from England, in 1823, through the Monroe Doctrine, we declared our realization that we were powerful enough as a country to claim the North and South American continent, as well as the Caribbean, our imperial domain. Since then, and particularly following the late 19th century, early 20th century, United States foreign policy initiatives have been responsible for dozens of invasions and coups throughout the hemisphere on behalf of making markets accessible to corporate investment in the most favorable conditions possible. How favorable, you may ask? So favorable that according to U.S. Department of Commerce figures in the period of 1950 to 1965, United States corporations made investments of some $3.8 billion and extracted a return of $11.3 billion for a net profit flow of $7.9 billion, a profit rate of more than 200%. The flip side for particularly Central American and the Caribbean people of this profiteering and the profiteering that preceded it by our imperial predecessors has been the history of mass poverty and mass misery that continues largely until this day within the indigenous populations in Central America. You do not have to be a quote-unquote communist to realize that you are getting ruthlessly exploited. And the result has been a number of nationalist-born struggles to improve living conditions to at least a humane level throughout our hemisphere. In response to such oppressive living conditions, people like you and me have risen up to organize and, if necessary, fight to protect their family members from dying prematurely and or from suffering preventable diseases and all other forms of despair that such economically deprived conditions provoke. And when they do, it is in this context, then, that the primary motivation and function of all these United States foreign policy coups and military invasions that have occurred to quash these forms of valid and popular revolt in the past hundred years or so in this hemisphere can be properly understood, namely to keep the most profitable investment climate intact for large multinational corporate interests to thrive while indigenous people perish prematurely after experiencing a nearly intolerable life of poverty and despair. Now, as American news consumers, we are bombarded by quote-unquote news that more closely sometimes resembles a marketing campaign that functions to sanitize this basic, consistent, historical, and contemporary fact known as profiteering. We are confused into believing that as Hugo Chavez or Fidel Castro once again stirring up trouble throughout the region, rather than reporting the objective living conditions that arguably such leaders have led the struggle to correct. When we become victims of such empty rhetoric of personalities that grabs our attention away from the basic issue, namely, what would you do if you lived under such intolerable living conditions, we take our eye off the ball and are more vulnerable to being ideologically manipulated. A major news item that we've been covering on this show since June 28th is the Honduran coup. Today, we want to refocus accordingly, but not on ideological rhetoric surrounding the continuing Honduran coup. Rather, we want to bring light to the darkness surrounding just what type of policies and policy actions did the democratically elected president of Honduras, Manuel Zelaya, who was removed by the coup, what actions did his administration take while he was in power from January 27, 2006 until the June 28, 2009 coup that deposed President Zelaya earlier this year? Most importantly, during his 3.5-year tenure as president, were the living conditions improving, staying the same, or deteriorating for the majority population of Hondurans relative to the current recession, as well as to relative to the populations of the other four Central American nations? 
we will get these questions answered and formally introduce our special guest, Dr. Jose Antonio Cordero, right after this brief pause. To our listeners, again, this is a recording from November of 2009, so the context of the world economy should be understood in that regard. The interview with Dr. Cordero continues here. At this time, I want to go ahead and welcome to Bringing Light Into Darkness our special guest, Dr. Jose Antonio Cordero. He is a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. He received his Ph.D. in economics from the University of Notre Dame. Previously, he got an M.A. in economics from the University of Kansas and a B.S. in economics from the University of Costa Rica. Before joining CEPR, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, he worked as a full professor and chair from 2001 to 2006 at the Department of Economics of the University of Costa Rica, where he also conducted various research and consulting projects. He was also a visiting professor at Mount Holyoke College during the 2006-2007 academic year. More recently, his research interests have focused on the economic growth of open monetary economies, growth accounting, and on the impact of foreign investment in the development of the host country. Dr. Cordero, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Uh, thank you very much, Pedro, and uh, thank you very much for the invitation to participate in this program that you have. Let me ask you, I just want to let folks know, this article that you recently published, Honduras' Recent Economic Performance, November 2009, it was published at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I went through it. It was a very powerfully documented overview of the Honduran economy. I was wondering if you could share with our audience the indices that most accurately reflect the living conditions before and during the Zelaya years. Yes, this article is actually an attempt to capture the most important indications on uh, Honduran economic performance during the Zelaya administration. It is part of another set of efforts that the Center for Economic and Policy Research has been conducting on recent Honduran events, including economic events as well as political and other kinds of events within this country. Uh, yes, in general, we believe that under the Zelaya administration, the Honduran economy performed very well. So to summarize the most important points that we are putting forward in the paper, first, economic growth was very satisfactory. Second, in terms of the public debt, it was decreased considerably under the Zelaya administration. Credit to the private sector went up also considerably. Within the social sphere, we would say the conditions improved considerably as a result of various policies aimed at improving income distribution, addressing poverty, and at increasing access to education. More specifically, Honduras it is a poor country. It is, in 2007, it is the third poorest country in Latin America after Nicaragua and Guyana. Poverty is widespread throughout the country. There's deep differences between the rural and the urban sectors of the economy, and there's lots of difficulties to have access for the majority of the population to have access to education, and there's other difficulties within the economy. In spite of all that, we believe that the Zelaya administration considerably contributed to mitigating those difficulties that the Honduran population was suffering. In terms of economic growth, we found that Honduran had the highest rates of growth in Central America during 2006 and 2007, second only to Costa Rica. In 2006, the Honduran GDP grew 6.6%. In 2007, it grew 6.4%. 
And in 2008, it grew 4%. 2008 is a year which is affected by the world recession. It is quite a jump uh, down from the previous numbers that uh, the country posted, especially in 2007 and 2006. But still in 2008, it was the country that grew at the highest rate in Central America. Thanks to the policies applied by the government, the country was able to run at 4%. I mean, they were able to grow when the things were going well, and they were able to grow when things were not going so well for them and also for, for the rest of the world. One of the mechanisms, one of the elements that made it possible for Honduras to grow at such rates of growth was the fact that there was an important increase in credit to the private sector. Interest rates for productive activities declined considerably from 2006 until 2007, basically. And still throughout a portion of 2008, interest rates went down considerably, and that made it possible for credit to the private sector to grow at a very high rate. Of course, we believe that one of the reasons that made it possible for economic growth to go up is the possibility to have higher credit for the private sector. So this is another element that we believe is a remarkable result. It has been documented by United Nations and by the Central American Monetary Council. They have documented that some of the policies applied by the government during 2008 were aimed at facilitating liquidity access to resources and credit to producers so that they were able to uh, face the adverse conditions that were coming as a result of the international crisis, especially the financial crisis that happened during 2008. One of the mechanisms that were used by the administration in order to facilitate liquidity, that is, in order to facilitate access to credit, was a reduction in the legal reserve requirement in commercial banks, as well as the uh, funding of, of various kinds of activities by means of special lines of credit to the private sector. So this is another very important point that we believe uh, came as a result of the administration. The other element that's important is an important reduction in the public debt. Public debt was, in 2005, about 45% of GDP. It went down to 17.4% in 2008, and, and that was the result of renegotiating and actions aimed at having certain portions of foreign debt pardoned by the international community, and uh, as a result of uh, other actions within the international community to make it possible for Honduras to reduce this burden, which allowed to free some resources to be applied to uh, the attention of several needs within the Honduran population. Within the social sphere, income distribution improved, poverty was reduced, and wages were raised considerably, and I'll, um, I would like to mention a few things about the wage raises. In terms of the social indicators, income distribution improved during the Zelaya administration. The percent of households below the poverty line was, in Honduras, almost 66% in 2005, and it went down to 60% in 2007. That, that's a considerable decline. And then in terms of, uh, of the distribution of, of the whole pie, of the whole income that households receive, Unfortunately, we only have data up until 2006 here, but what we observed from the data is that the total national household income going to the poorest section of the population went from 2% in 2005 to 2.5% in 2006. Now, that sounds like it isn't really that much, but it really represents a lot for people whose income is very, very small but also the percent of income going to the intermediate sections of the population went from 35% in 2005 to 
38% in 2006, almost 39%. Accordingly, of course, the portion of income going to the richest portions of the population declined from over 47% in 2005 to 42% in 2006. What's the meaning of these numbers? Well, it is basically indicating that income going to the richest portion of the population uh, in Honduras were receiving less in 2006 than they were receiving before. Not in the total number that they were receiving, in the absolute amount of income that they were receiving, that probably was, was higher, but as a proportion of the whole pie, the share of that pie that the richest portion of the population was receiving was smaller as compared to the share of the pie that the poorest portion of the population were receiving. So in terms of distributive justice, we can say that there was a, an important job that was done by the administration. Of course, then, unfortunately, we don't have data for years after 2006. However, we can infer that probably the data for those years were even better in terms of income distribution. Income distribution was more even. Now, how can we say that? Well, first, because spending in education went up considerably. What's the impact of that? Well, number one, not all Hondurans could go to school, even if school is now free. As a result of the changes that were done by the Salaya administration, education is now free. There were certain payments that people, households, would have to make when sending their kids to school, which no longer apply to children going to school. Now, as a result of that, larger portion of children now have access to education. But one of the reasons some of them don't go to school is because they don't have food in their house. They don't have enough food or they get sick. They have several kinds of limitations in terms of their access to education. So education being free doesn't necessarily imply that everybody can go and attend classes because they still need to eat. The government provided for several kinds of subsidies for people to go to school, but it also provided for one free meal for everybody at school. And the number of schools that were covered by that program increased considerably under the Salaya administration. It allows for people to attend school while being better fed. That improves your brain capacity, your disposition, and it improves the possibility of them remaining relatively healthy and strong, even though they don't have enough food and uh, supplies within their, their household. One other issue that is very important is the policies that the Celaya made in terms of uh, increasing the minimum wage. The minimum wage in Honduras was a low. Only Nicaragua had lower wages in Central America. How bad is that? Well, Central America is an area that is known for having very, very low wages. That's one of the reasons that many, many maquiladoras from a lot of places in the world go to Central America just to take advantage of the low wages that people earn so they, could, they can make a bigger profit. So the decision to improve the minimum wage was a very important one in terms of not only making it possible for people to have a better standard of living, but also in terms of, in the long run, key to attaining a higher level of development is to find a path along which you can have both higher productivity and reasonable costs for producers. So this, we believe, is one very good signal uh, the motivation for this was, we believe, can be seen as a longer approach, longer-term approach to development. But also, in addition to that, the minimum wage in Honduras was very low. It didn't cover the cost of the basic consumption bundle. Now, the basic consumption bundle is an estimate of the cost of what an average family would require to live uh, over the poverty line in Honduras. So... If the minimum wage didn't cover the basic consumption bundle, that implies that people are not earning what's necessary to remain over and above the poverty line. 
so it means that they will remain poor. So one of the reasons for this change was basically the need to bring out those standards of living of this population. As a result of these changes that were applied, the, the, the wage increase, it's a 60% increase in the minimum wage. Now, even after the 60% increase in the minimum wage, the minimum basic consumption bundle was not covered 100%. So even after the wage increase, people would still not be making enough to live decently under the standard set by the minimum consumption bundle. Mm-hmm. And the 60%, of course, is relative with respect to the very low minimum wage to begin with, which I'm trying to remember in your paper, you indicated what that was. It was like under, what was it? It, it was approximately 3,400 lempiras, which is $178 a month uh, per month. That was raised to uh, 4,055 lempiras, which is $213 per month, basically. Now, with that, wages would only cover about a little over 80% of the minimum consumption bundle, meaning that still they would not be making enough to avoid poverty. If you take the uh, consumption bundle as an indication of what people need to make in order to cover their basic living requirements, then those requirements were not covered before the raise. And after the 60% wage increase, those requirements were only covered up to uh, around 80%. So what I'm trying to say that even though this was an important race, still wasn't enough for the poor people to cover everything that they needed. Now, the business sector reacted pretty negatively to this, to this wage race. And we have to keep in mind here that the other part is that the decision on the Celaya administration to apply this race was based on the fact that both the private sector and workers were holding meetings for several months and they didn't reach an agreement on what the wage race was going to be. The um, workers' claim was the minimum wage increase would have to be just enough to fully cover the minimum consumption bundle, the basic consumption bundle. But the business sector was claiming that they didn't want to have any wage raise to have to be paid. That is, they wanted wages to remain at the level that they had been before. So if the business recommendation had been followed, workers would not have seen any improvement in their living conditions. That extreme was the position of the business sector. Of course, no wonder that no agreement was to be reached with such a demand on the business sector, which was very extreme. I mean, the fact that, I mean, it was no surprise that there was no agreement. After no agreement was reached, then the Salaj administration decided that they were going to apply the 60% minimum wage increase. That happened in December 2008. After that happened, the business sector filed more than 500 appeals to the Supreme Court on the claims that the wage increase was violating their constitutional rights, that is, the constitutional rights of the business sector. After several months of deliberation on the part of the, of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court put out a document, or a statement, basically, a statement indicating that the wage raise was not violating any constitutional rights, and not only that, but also the government had acted according to what was needed in terms of guaranteeing that people were going to have a decent standard of living, which is what the wage race was supposed to be seeking. Of course, this was won by the Salaya administration, but unfortunately, it caused a very important deterioration in the relationship between Salaya and the business sector. And probably that might have affected later perceptions on what to, how to proceed and other political elements that were involved in the situation that the economy is facing. And, and the last point that I wanted to raise 
is that the political situation that Honduras is facing since the end of June is already having an important consequence on the Honduran economy. The monthly index of economic activity has been declining for almost six consecutive months. Uh, International monetary reserves have declined. Exports are declining. Imports are declining even more than exports, which means that the commercial deficit is declining, but it is declining for the wrong reasons. But it is declining because of the lack of economic activity. And we believe that if the current conditions continue, then the business sector within Honduras is going to have a hard time facing the current crisis. That is, the current crisis that requires that certain actions be adopted in order for, for the economy to better handle the different kinds of conditions that come as a result of, the, of this great recession that we are facing. The, the absence of, the, of a more stable government is definitely not helping that. Well, it seems pretty clear that whatever increasing economic problems are going to be caused to Hondurans and the business sectors, that it's going to hit the poorer sectors much harder. And that's the true tragedy, that they can sit and have their refrigerators full and just not be making quite what they wish to make, I guess. Just as an ending note, I just want to remind people that there has been incredible, uh, very considerable repression as well in Honduras that has resulted in more than a dozen deaths and hundreds, if not thousands, of arrests and detainments as the Honduran people took to the streets to demand the return of their democratically elected president, Zelaya, that was removed in the June 28th coup, and the suspension of different types of rights. And, and I just wanted to just add that when you compare Honduras in relation to Iran with respect to the uh, population differences, it's very much you know the same or even a greater level of repression in Honduras as it was following the election and the potential fraudulent election, I might add, in Iran, yet we're not covering that at all in the cable news or in the regular news like we did the Iranian deal. But listen, we are out of time. I want to thank you very much. And before I let you go, I just want to remind folks that we've been visiting with Dr. Jose Antonio Cordero, a very esteemed economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. I know for our listeners, some of this is hard to follow, but the bottom line, it seems to me, is that as soon as you start raising the wages for people that are already overwhelmingly in poverty, that have created the wrath of the business elite and the United States is the only country in the world that didn't immediately withdraw its ambassadorship from Honduras and has been been on both sides of the fence so to speak and it's really a deplorable thing especially in light of the Obama administration's foreign policy campaigning prior to the election of the president that we would respect world opinion in something like this. And when the whole UN and when the Organization of American States and European Union all are saying one thing and acting in one way, yet the United States is giving legitimation, actually legitimating this Michelletti. It's a, a covert form of really supporting an intolerable situation. And as you've indicated, over the last six months, economic indices have, have tumbled as a result. So thank you so much for your time and your oh, good thank work. Thank you. Great job. So thank you all very much for your work, and we will be in touch. Thank you very much. Okay. I just wanted to say that this audio tape of this interview with Dr. Cordero is very instructive because it shows how the government that we oppose improves working conditions and improves living conditions for the majority population in Honduras. And the same thing occurred in Ecuador from 2007 to 2017 under President Carrillo. 
The same thing occurred under Bolivia with Evo Morales from 2006 to 2019. The same thing occurred under the Aristide governments. All of these governments are the ones that we oppose as foreign policy. And so it should really point to the character of our country's foreign policy. So I wanted to share that. In the last few minutes that we have, I wanted to return to our guest, Josefina Castillo, with the Austin Tonserca de la Frontera. She has a PhD in education from the University of Arizona. She's been a popular educator in Mexico and the U.S. for over three to four decades. And it's just really an honor to have you on the show again, Josefina. We wanted to get your remarks from this interview of Cordero and then also return to the important Women in Fair Trade event that's occurring next Saturday. So please, can you share a few thoughts and then also remind us a little bit more about the event? Sure. I think that Dr. Cordero's uh, conversation was very interesting because uh, all in all, it shows us how neoliberal policies have not worked at all. And those governments that have a more progressive uh, political economy have really increased their domestic products for the benefit of the low-income community. So I'm just hoping that this neoliberal policy world in which we live will soon enough changing its policies towards a more fair economy. And that's why we are also organizing this Women and Fair Trade, because it's not only the sale of crafts, which is important, but it's also learning about what fair economy and fair trade means. And by learning about the communities of all the cooperatives, the aid cooperatives that we invite every year. So this year is going to be at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin on 4700 Grover Avenue. And it's going to be on December the 3rd from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. So I just hope that everybody listening can support this effort of women's cooperatives and listen to what they have to say. And if people want more information, your website, please. ATCF.org. Thank you so much, Josefina, for all the work that you do in the community of the world. You are very inspiring to me and other people, and we will see you at the event. Sure, sure. I hope to see you there and also a lot of other people to support these, uh, these efforts of interesting people that will talk about their communities as well. All right. Well, thank you for bringing light into darkness. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. See you next week.